Welcome to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. Whether it's hanging upside down from an inversion rack or inserting lifts in your shoes, many people, mostly men, wish they were a little bit taller. And why not? Studies suggest society sees taller men and women as smarter, more affluent, more likely to be leaders. But what lengths would you go to for an extra couple of inches? How much would you be willing to spend? Joining us to now to talk about what it costs to be a little bit taller is Dr. Mas- uh, Dr. Michael Asayag, a board-certified orthopedic surgeon who specializes in limb lengthening surgery. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you so much. You perform these leg lengthening surgeries for people with certain medical conditions and for cosmetic reasons. Can you walk us through what's what's involved here? Like, like how do you make somebody taller, basically? So limb lengthening uses your body's natural ability to heal bone by creating bone tissue. So just like the liver, bone doesn't heal with scar. And it's not a new method. It's a method that's been around for over 70 years now. And by using this method, we can create a new cone of bone in the bones of the lower leg or the upper leg and create height. But obviously, height lengthening is only a small indication of what limb lengthening can do. And how many inches can somebody, let's say somebody who's doing it for cosmetic purposes, how many inches can I expect to be? So I'm, I'm five, eight and a half, just a little shy of five, nine. How tall could I get? So all that obviously is uh, granted that you work really hard and that your surgeon uh, knows how to troubleshoot the lengthening. Safely, in a single lengthening, one could, you could get about three inches of height, about eight centimeters. And through two lengthenings, if everything works well, up to five inches. Some will say six inches, but it's really pushing the limits. And so this, the way this works essentially is you're going to break somebody's bone. And it's my understanding that you insert some kind of device. And then that device sort of like ratchets, sort of creates space in between those two broken bones, right? Over a couple of months. Is that kind of how that works? You got it. So by very carefully separating the bone uh, and inserting a a telescopic device, there's a lot of them that exist in the world, uh, only a couple of them on the American market. Um, By activating the mechanism of that telescopic rod, we create a space, we create a gap. And your body within that gap creates a healing reaction that keeps on being stretched. And we're talking about extremely slowly. We're talking about one millimeter at most per day. One millimeter, just um, to put you in perspective, it's one twenty-fifth of an inch. And we lengthen every session in increments of a quarter of that. So one hundredth of an inch. So that's extremely slow. And in the gap, there's new bone that forms. And your, your muscles, your ligaments, they sort of grow along with that bone? So although they do stretch as well, Uh, by the same mechanism that we call distraction histogenesis, um, they don't stretch as much because they span joints, right? They go beyond the hip or beyond the knee or the ankle. So they have to be also manually stretched via physical therapy and a daily flexibility routine. 
I tell my, my patients to stretch two to three hours a day if they want to be successful in their height lengthening. That kind of gets into my next question about what does recovery look like? How, like, what is, are we using a walker? It sounds like it's a pretty intense rehab process. So historically, limb lengthening devices were not capable of weight bearing. This is about to change in, in, in about a month. However, um, the lengthening period lasts anywhere between three and five months, time during which a walker, crutches, or a wheelchair is used, followed uh, once the, the, the bone structure has improved and is good enough, followed by a weight-bearing period progressively, um, and then followed by a fully weight-bearing period. So for eight centimeters, I usually tell people they should expect six months before they can fully bear weight. Now, this is about to change because in a month, the American market will see a weight-bearing nail, or at least a partially weight-bearing nail, uh, claims the company. And that will make uh, patients a little bit more functional during their lengthening process. What does the scarring look like? I know, you know, because we're making a surgical incision in the leg and you make a second one to remove these lengthening devices. So what kind of what kind of scarring am I looking at? So it's quite aesthetic. If we're looking at ephemeral lengthening, we're looking at five small incision, uh, the biggest of which is about an inch, the smallest of which is about a quarter of an inch. And they're all on the side of the thigh. We use a plastic surgery closure method that we call a subcuticular method. All the stitches are underneath the skin. It yields a very nice result. Um, you know, if we compare it to very common cosmetic procedures like abdominoplasty, the scarring is is, uh, is much less than that. Yeah, and all now plastic for... surgery has some level of scarring. It depends on the skill of the surgeon, your body, how you react, how you heal. That's correct. You're you're right. And there's also a lot of adjuncts that can be used to uh, to improve scarring. Um, now, the, for the second surgery, the removal procedure, we usually use the same scars, um, so it doesn't create new ones. And what if you're active, like you're a runner or a hiker or do, you know, you're, you're try to get those 10,000 steps in every day. Does this impact your, like once fully healed, so I'm not talking about the recovery, do you have any restrictions on your activity level long term? Well, that's the beauty of it. There really are no restrictions because the new bone that is created is, has the same um, mechanical properties, the same capabilities as the native bone, the bone you're, 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 you grew with. So once it's all said and done, even when the lengthening rods in, once the bone is fully healed, um, there's, there are no restrictions. People go back to running, they go back to hiking, they go back to climbing mountains. Um, I have patients who go back to, to pretty much all sports. Now, there is some evidence that people may tend to lose some explosive power, mm. right? So for those cons uh, considering a um, an Olympic career in Olympic sprinting, that may not be a good idea <laughs> to do. But That's for you know, it's it they'll go back to full activities. So I have a question about proportionality. So our wingspan is correlates to our heights. Our upper and lower legs are in relative proportion. Basically, my question is, 
does adding three inches or maybe over time adding five, does it throw those proportions off a little? Like if my legs got five inches longer and my arms didn't, wouldn't it look weird? So there are no well-defined proportions. Proportions really vary within a range. So people from African-American descent uh, have proportions that are different than Caucasians that are different than Asians. So right then and there, there's no universal proportions. However, you're correct that doing a three-inch lengthening in the femur will throw off, to a certain extent, the, the, the proportions between the, the tibias and the femur, so the lower leg and the upper leg. However, you know, everything is a world of compromise, right? What's more important between proportions versus height? We can disguise our proportions by the way we dressed, but it's much harder to disguise our height when we're not wearing shoes. So the big question is, uh, if you're not having this kind of surgery for a medical reason uh, and it's not covered by your insurance, what does it cost? So if it's not covered by insurance and we're doing it for cosmetic purposes, in our center, the prices start at about $69,000 and can go as high, especially for with that new uh, partially weight-bearing technology that's coming up, to about $88,000 for a tibia lengthening. So it's it's a vast range of price. And it's not cheap. I mean, it's I mean, cosmetic surgery is never cheap, but this is a particularly expensive kind of cosmetic surgery. You're correct. However, neither is a luxury car. And people will have a luxury car for 10, 15, 20 years if they take good care of, of, of their car. However, afterwards, you know, there's nothing. High lengthening surgery is forever. I hadn't thought about that, but it's kind of like making a payment on a Tesla. You got it. Because I assume a lot of people finance this. They're not plunking down 80 grand in cash. It's across the board, but you're correct. Most people finance it. And as you said, it's not uh, it's no different than, than a Tesla. Is there any long you said the surgery has been around for about 70 years. So what kind of long term data do we have on the health of people who choose to have this procedure? So the beauty of it is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of long term negative problems. Um, it doesn't seem to have an impact on the risk of arthritis. It doesn't seem to have an impact on the ability to walk. It does create some um, stiffness in the muscles that tend to resolve with stretching. However, there's no long-term evidence of, of problems. And granted, that's if the, proce the procedure is performed properly. Oh, yeah. I always say that uh, there are certain things in life you should never bargain basement. Plastic surgery and tattoos are top among them. Anything that's going to change your body forever, the cheapest is probably not the best. You're correct. And we see a big increase in complications coming from medical tourism in areas where there may not be as much um, scrutiny in, uh, in the healthcare provider world. And it sounds like for this, uh, for a lot of cosmetic surgery, the aftercare is so critical to success of the surgery. It sounds like in this one in particular, that aftercare, that physical therapy, that training, that commitment to a six-month regimen, it sounds like that's so critical to long-term success. It is actually, I want to say, 99% of the success. The surgery in itself is relatively easy, but it's the decision-making that, that makes the difference. It's the effort in physical therapy. So I'll give you an analogy. I tell all my patients that limb lengthening 
is like piloting a boat in an iceberg-ridden sea. You expect your captain to be at the helm because accidents are imminent. Limb lengthening is the same way. The surgeon has to be able to uh, predict, prevent, and correct any obstacles and complications that, that may happen, and they do happen. I assume you get calls more from men than women, but have you had a woman undergo this kind of surgery? Oh, many, many, many. Um, I would say it's about 20 to 25% of our population undergoing cosmetic height surgery. And what what do people say when they make it through the other side? You know, I mean, it's a lot of work for three inches. Uh, what has been the reaction from your patients once, once they've finished with their rehab? They are ecstatic. They are stoked. I've never had a single patient be unhappy about it. Um, people really see a huge difference, not only in their height, but really in their self-body image, because that's why they do it, right? All of a sudden, the amount of negative thoughts in everyday life related to their height plummets, and the amount of positive thoughts regarding their height um, increases. So it is it is really life-changing. The most common comment that I hear from my patients two, three, four years after is, I don't think about my height anymore. It's gone. Yeah, because I've also, uh, I've done, in preparation for this uh, show, I spent some time listening to some testimonies from different patients and different, like, interviews. And one of the things I just found fascinating was some of the men that have been interviewed described feeling like they they just got more natural respect, which I find so fascinating as a woman. Well, I'm also a woman who's tall for a woman. So contextually, I guess it it seems strange that going from 5'7 to 5'10 would have such an impact on the way people interact with you in your day-to-day life. I think we shouldn't, um, we should always keep in mind that our most important confidence organ is between our ears. It's our brain. But our brain interacts with all the components of our life, and height being one of them. So is height really the component that increases um, people's perception of us, or is it the way we carry ourselves? And I think it's it's a little bit of both. And if if someone is out there listening, thinking to themselves, this is this is something I would like to try, um, what do you how do you recommend they begin their research or pick a surgeon? I know you guys are located in Maryland and given the amount of rehab involved in this, someone that might not be the best choice for someone in Ohio, but I guess how do, how do I start by, how do I pick a good surgeon for this? Such a good question. Well, we have a lot of patients coming from Ohio, uh, actually a, a big, a big bullet from Chagrin Falls, from uh, Columbus, from Cleveland. Now, it's a very, very good question. So the first advice I would give someone considering this is think about it twice. Is it really worth it for you? Okay, are you willing to uh, go through one of the most difficult process you'll ever go through in your life to be taller? That's number one. Number two, I would say you have to pick a surgeon who is not only an orthopedic surgeon, but trained with a track record experience in limb lengthening, not only in limb lengthening, but in all types of limb lengthening. So the best limb lengthening surgeons are the ones who treat 
leg length discrepancies for from congenital anomalies from trauma from from infection those are the best why because they know how to troubleshoot all the problems and obstacles they know what's abnormal and by knowing what's abnormal they know how to prevent abnormal if that makes sense so picking a surgeon with a proven track record of being able to treat diverse kinds of leg length discrepancy is one number two one have a, a, a a surgeon who has a lot of experience as well in the world of cosmetic limb lengthening, not someone who dabbles, someone who does at least, I want to say 10 to 12 um, of those per year. And finally, like anything else, someone with good reviews, Be, buyers beware. Okay. If, if 20% of people out there complain that a surgeon is making mistakes or is causing complications, well, maybe wishful thinking and thinking that it wouldn't happen to one uh, is not the best course of action. So those would be really my, my advice. That was Dr. Michael Asayag. He's a board certified orthopedic surgeon who specializes in limb lengthening surgery at the Rubin Institute for Advanced Orthopedics in Maryland. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Anna. Coming up, we're diving into the details of a new study being launched here in Ohio to identify the root causes of certain mental illnesses. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to what, back to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. One out of every five Ohioans has a mental health challenge that negatively affects their day-to-day -day functioning. And the state would like to know more about why. That's why it's donating millions of dollars to a new research study called SOAR. The goal of the initiative is to identify root causes of things like persistent emotional distress, suicidal thoughts, and drug overdoses. Joining us now is the chair of Ohio State University's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health, Dr. Kay Luan Fan. Welcome to All Sides. Thanks for having me. You're the principal investigator on this SOAR study. Can you start by telling us what SOAR stands for and how the idea for this investigation came about? Yes, uh, SOAR stands for the State of Ohio Adversity and Resilience Study. It came about um, in a conversation that I had um, over two years ago uh, with the governor, Governor Mike DeWine, in his cabinet. Um, and the governor at that time uh, was looking at a state coming out of the pandemic, um, seeing people struggling and not living to their fullest potential as Ohioans, and really asked the question, not only what are we doing for people who are in the midst of a mental health crisis, but what are we doing to sort of get them better, keep them well. So both on the on the side of crisis, but also the side of how do we 
uh, improve uh, on people's ability to, to live to their fullest potential. And if I read the release correctly, this study will be divided into two groups of people, the wellness discovery study and the brain health study. So who's going to be in each group? What are you trying to figure out? Yeah, so so um, the study is launching with two studies that are really interactive with one another. We believe that the first study or study one is a broad approach to try to cover uh as many as 15,000 Ohioans across all of our 88 counties to think about not only the negative aspects of mental health, but also the positive aspects of mental health, what has kept them well, uh, despite having gone through stress and adversity in the last few years. Uh, And that's sort of a broad scope in which we try to reach as many Ohioans across all of our geographic uh, regions as possible. Study two takes a deeper dive and begins to think about families, uh, as many as 3,600 Ohioans and 1,200 families nested in that kind of setting where parents and children, grandparents can all participate in the study. And it will cover wellness, but also begin to uh, try to uncover root causes, uh, things that are cause and effect, uh, things that are a big question and big mystery in our field, to try to link um, uh, what's happened in the past and how does it lead to the current state so that we can intervene about what we do in the future. So study one is a broad uh, approach and study two is a deep approach. And, And both participants in both studies will be invited to participate in one and the other. So hopefully there'll be a Venn diagram where there's a lot of overlap of participants across two studies, but we wanted to have a a broad study as well as a deep study at the same time. So it's breadth and depth. That's right. (laughs) Um, With the the wellness discovery, that broad scope, uh, I understand that this is already underway and that 300,000 postcards have been mailed out to people statewide. Is this is this just going to show up in my inbox? It, it can. It will show up in your in your um, mailbox. In your inbox, I said inbox. Your mailbox. <laughs> right. Yeah. We, we, we're still doing snail mail these days uh, in that form. So we're sending it out in batches. Uh, 300,000 in total will be sent out. So far, about 150,000 or about half has, have already been sent out. Uh, and, and at the latest report, there have already been, uh, I, I told you that the target was going to be 15,000 Ohioans. We already have 5,000 fully, mm. fully completing that 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 survey already. Uh, so we're, we're a good, um, good third of the way, even though only half of the postcards have been sent out. So we're very excited about that. And it really reflects how important the issue is for Ohioans, for them to take time to fill out a survey uh, to help themselves, but also fellow Ohioans. And so it sounds like it's just like a questionnaire and some short answer, and then you just mail it back to you guys, essentially, right? No, what it is, it's a postcard with a, mm. with a QR code. Uh, you, you get onto a, a web-based format, and you actually spend 50 minutes filling out a, a pretty a pretty extensive, but as extensive as we can be for 50 minutes about. It's about a 50-minute survey on uh, run through, um, uh, you know, an internet Wi-Fi connection or whatever you can get on the web. So look for that postcard in your mail. Um, Are you hoping to get a good cross-section of age, race, gender, sexual orientation? Like, I know you're trying to get from all across the state, but are you hoping to get, like, just a good cross-section of folks, too? Yeah, we we believe that... um, Ohio is a great microcosm and a heartland of all of America. And so by by having true representation 
and um, diversity reflected in this survey, it's going to be uh, the findings will then be able to be scaled and disseminated across the country. So yes, we, we, we're looking on, on clear representation of all those uh, aspects, gender, gender identity, um, uh, sexual orientation, religious background, socioeconomic status, uh, race, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. So all those things are really important. We'll be looking at the data regularly. And whenever we get a sense that we are not sampling uh, a, a cohort of folks that we know we need to sample in order to get a true diversity, we will oversample then with new postcards going into those certain communities as well. Do you have a timeline for this study? The timeline is the next 18 months it will, it will be completed. So it's, it's about a year and a half in its duration. And then what we hope is that as data is coming in, it allows us to get the next iteration of studies three, four, five, and so on, so that there's always learning going on from the first two studies and how to better design the next set of studies so that it's sustainable for decades and generations to come. That's really the, the promise and the hope of, of SOAR. So what, what do you hope to accomplish? Um, basically, what would make you say that this money invested by the state of Ohio has been well spent? Yeah, I would say that um, much of re our resources, and, and one could argue that there hasn't been as much resources going into um, mental health and research around mental health, but that said, in our clinical settings, we often focus on crises. We've spent much less time moving upstream and thinking about prevention and early intervention. People wait a long time to get to, into care, and we do very little to help people in their homes, in their workplace, and in their schools in terms of prevention strategies. So I would hope that out of SOAR, we develop a new playbook, essentially a different kind of toolbox for patients' families to have on the prevention space, things that they can do that they've not really thought of before that they can deploy at home and in their homes and, and in their neighborhoods and in their schools and their workplace um, so that they don't have to go visit uh, a psychiatrist or a therapist to take care of the crisis, to, to take care of issues before it gets too late. Uh, very much in the same way that we, we, we think about heart disease, which is another complex medical behavioral problem. We think of heart disease both as a heart attack, but also things that we can do to prevent those heart attacks from happening in the first place. And so we don't have that playbook for prevention in behavioral health as much as I'd like. And I'd like for SOAR to begin to produce some tangible evidence-based strategies that people can really use at, uh, outside of the clinic. This sounds like it dovetails with something that the governor said in his last State of the State address, where he said it's time, he said, for so long, we've been pulling people out of the river. It was an analogy, right? Like, you fall in the river, we pull you out and we rescue you. He's like, but we haven't gone upstream to figure out why they're falling in in the first place. This sounds like that's what you're getting at. That's exactly right. That's a, a, a great quote from the Archbishop Desmond Tutu back in 1984 when he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And he was probably not talking about wellness and well-being and mental health at that time. He was probably talking some about some major global disaster like poverty or, or um, uh, you know, or other marginalized 
populations or something but this is this is a similar theme right it's a very very similar theme that at some point we have to go upstream to to really solve the problem and, and the problem is c continue to not become more prevalent but also more deadly in in in, in uh, our our communities how important was the state's investment into this study the state has contributed 20 million dollars so it's quite a bit of money um basically would soar be happening without this investment absolutely not this, the, I, I certainly think that the themes of SOAR are so important that we would have conducted it in some way to address some of these aims that we have, but we would not be able to do it at the scale, the, the breadth and the depth, as we said earlier, without the state's investment. This is a catalytic investment, a pivotal one that we hope continues, of course, but we also hope that it propels other states to do a similar thing across their regions. Uh, we hope to, over time, build a coalition, alliances of, of SOARs all over the country. And, and I think that that when uh, the state, the governor, the General Assembly, the, the, the governor's cabinet pays attention to an issue like this, I hope it becomes a role model that other states sort of not only uh, want to copy because it's the 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 right thing to do or the good thing to do, but they'll be compelled to do so. You're also partnering with other institutions across Ohio, right? Yeah, we, we really believe bringing the best, best minds across Ohio. And, and of course, um, we at Ohio State think we have great people, but we're not the only quote unquote academic player in the state. And so it was important for us to really think about where else across the state are, are could be great academic partners to really join into this effort. And so that's why the vast majority of them are public institutions, well-known uh, academic medical centers, so that not only the people who are going to be studied in SOAR don't have to go to Columbus to be studied, right? So that's one platform to go to an academic mm. medical center closer to you. But the other important thing is that we have a mobile unit that is actually going to be covering areas that are outside those academic medical centers in Toledo, Cleveland, Columbus, that, that will hopefully uh, reach uh, as well. And Cincinnati is another name that I'm, I'm forgetting. So hopefully that will help sort of bring uh, bring people across the entire state to be involved. But yeah, it was really important to get academic partners to, to bring kind of the, the, the brain trust together uh, of the best minds in Ohio. And if I didn't get one of those postcards in the mail, but I'm listening and I don't know, I don't, I haven't gotten a postcard, full disclosure, but if I wanted to participate in the study, is there any way to do so? Or do I have to wait for that postcard to come in the mail? You don't have to wait for the postcard. You can, we have a website in which you can come. This is, by the way, not a recruitment strategy because that needs to be approved before I say so. Let me put that qualification out there. I, asked. Certainly... I yeah. asked the question. You didn't uh, volunteer. Yeah. So the website is www.soarstudies.org. So S-O-A-R studies.org. And that will give you the beginning of uh, the description a link that you can click on to contact our team, and then you'll learn more about the study in that way. That was Dr. K. Luann Fan, chair of the Ohio State University's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health and the lead investigator on SOAR. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And when you get those results, we'll have to back, have you back on to talk about them and what you've learned in about 18 months. I would love to. Thank you. Coming up on All Sides, we're exploring why women are more likely to have certain autoimmune diseases than men. 
That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Wellness Wednesday. I'm your host, Anna Staber. Four out of five patients who suffer from autoimmune diseases like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis are women. It's something that's befuddled the scientific community for decades, but new research may finally solve this biological mystery. Joining me now to talk about it is the author of a paper about this new finding, Dr. Howard Chang, professor of dermatology and genetics at Stanford University. Welcome to All Sides. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Our immune systems are meant to protect us from bacteria, parasites, viruses, but sometimes they get a little overzealous, lashing out against mostly harmless things like pollen if you have allergies. But autoimmune diseases are different, right? They're when your body attacks its own healthy cells and tissues. That's absolutely right. So autoimmune disease refers to actually a collection of diseases where the immune system turns against um, it's our own body. So that symptoms depend on which organs are attacked. And these, and women are disproportionately impacted by these diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and multiple sclerosis. That's right. And this is something that doctors and scientists have noticed uh, for decades. And even for a relatively common disease like lupus, uh, the ratio is actually nine to one female to male. So that that four out of five number is an average across many other diseases. But that bias sometimes is even more striking. Now we're going to turn to what I'm calling the science portion of our lesson. So women have two X chromosomes in their bodies. That's just, we're XX. And men are XY, so they've only got one X. And can you tell us why this matters when it comes to autoimmune diseases? Absolutely. So the uh, big picture uh, question we're trying to answer is uh, sort of the reason for this female bias. And for decades, uh, investigators have looked into things like sex hormones. So men have more testosterone, women have more estrogen, for example. But as you just mentioned, the sex chromosome difference is also another big fundamental contributor. And so the idea is that because there's two copies of the X in every female cell, there is a system in place to make sure that uh, basically equal amount of genes are basic information is made from male and female cells. And that involves um, something being done to the second X chromosome to shut down its activity in female cells. And that involves a very special RNA I call EXIST. And our research is really showing that this special mechanism, this uh, EXIST RNA, besides its job in keeping the second X chromosome quiet, it also has an unexpected effect in revving up the immune system. Yeah, so essentially, I guess, the two Xs 
you're trying to keep so the y doesn't do the driving but both x's theoretically could do the driving we'll just use driving as an analogy and so you want to like prevent those two x's like your body wants to prevent them from fighting over who's doing the driving so it kind of it puts one of them like in the back seat essentially right that's right. That's a great analogy. <laughs> okay. I, I tend to think in analogies. I was like thinking through it. I'm like, okay. But that that exist, which is X-I-S-T, that protein that forces one of the X's to the back seat, apparently that can be a problem when it comes to autoimmune diseases. Uh, that's right. So exist is actually an RNA. So it is actually just a long chain of, of you know, uh, of RNA that sits inside the, the cell, the nucleus, and it shuts down, uh, as, as you say, basically forces one of the X chromosomes to basically not put out any genetic information. And so that that RNA, then it can go and monkey with other cells or how, how does it cause, say, lupus or MS? Right. So our our finding really suggests that it's what happens in um, a, a female um, sort of a woman's body when uh, female cells die and exists RNA and also its associated protein partners leak out and the immune system gets to see it. So what we have known for some years now is that exists RNA is very big and also associated with about a hundred different proteins. So you were talking about analogy. So think about this RNA like a big train, right? And so there are different cars on the train uh, with different proteins sitting there like different passengers. So this RNA basically is collecting and concentrating these different proteins. And that form, uh, when it's released to the outside of the cell, uh, we think can rev up the immune system. And you tested this in male mice. Yes, yeah. So this was really something that I think is new. And I think that... um, uh, maybe shed some light on how this whole process works. So I mentioned that uh, you know, scientists have all these ideas about maybe your sex hormones, maybe it's the second X chromosome. And we had this new idea that it was just this one RNA, right? One RNA out of hundreds of genes uh, that's from the X chromosome that could be responsible. So we really, really wanted to isolate the effect of just exist RNA. So the experiment we came up with is to basically make a male mouse express exist, which they normally never do. And we found that once the male mice expressed exist or made to express exist, they would actually uh, acquire female level risk for autoimmune disease, the same level of severity. Yeah, I find that really fascinating. So much more so than the control group of the other mice and almost on par with where like women would be. That's correct. So, I mean, I know in science, you never want to say something is 100% like certain, but it does sound like you've gotten to maybe what the difference is between men and women in terms of developing these diseases. Or the results look really good so far. Uh, well, thank you for saying that. But I think I want to caution everybody that I think I think in the, the mouse model, you know, one kind of disease model that we tested, the existence of a major effect. But I think that there are many other situations still that I think other genes on the uh, the second X chromosome could have a major effect, and as as well as other situations where the, the sex hormones uh, have been shown to have major effects as well. But I think it just this case just demonstrates, in a, hopefully in a at least in some situations, this exists RNA and its protein partners uh, do have a major effect. There was this line from your paper that I thought was particularly interesting. And it's that, you know, male cell lines don't produce this exist. And that that it sounds like that 
nor have other styles used since for the here, I'm just going to read it because I'm not going to paraphrase you very well. It says all of a female patient's anti-exist complex antibodies, a huge source of women's autoimmune susceptibility goes unseen. And I think that statement to me, what struck me about it is that it can be so true of so much of medicine that very often the control group is male. And so if there's a difference in how it presents in women, we don't we don't know that or we don't catch it initially. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say that. So I'm a practicing dermatologist, right? And, and I see patients that also conduct laboratory-based research. And obviously, this study is all focused on trying to answer this question about the so female bias in autoimmune disease, which I mentioned. I, I'm, I'm always struck by that fact when I start seeing patients. But as we're working through these studies, um, we made actually two interesting findings. One is that we found that once we understand that exists has a major role, we were looking then to see if patients with autoimmune diseases would make antibodies against additional proteins associated with exists. And we did find actually a number of these antibodies, which we hope would help with diagnosis or patient uh, sort of, um, tracking in the future. But then um, the second discovery was we're thinking about, well, how come people haven't found these antibodies before? And then looking, uh, digging back a little bit, we realized that one of the standard ways that doctors used to test patients' blood for antibodies was done in a, the reference um, sort of cell line uh, was done in a cell line that did not have an inactive X chromosome, right? So basically um, patients are being screened, but they're not gonna really see these patterns because it was not the right material. And so it really struck me that, like, oh, we have this disconnect between what's actually happened in, in the human condition versus how we're studying it in the lab. Yeah, I've noticed that in a number of other, from like mental health, mental illness to physical illnesses, that, you know, widening the pool of who is in your test, who is in your control study is becoming increasingly important in medicine. Yes, I agree. And I think that this, uh, my understanding is that the, uh, the, the National Funder for Biomedical Research, the National Institutes of Health, also are uh, making an effort in this regard, right, to really ensure that different variables uh, including uh, sex, uh, ethnic background, other kinds of uh, geographical uh, uh, sort of adversity are all kind of considered. Uh, I think uh, when people do studies, they obviously want a situation where everything's very well controlled, everything's very homogeneous. It's much easier that way. Uh, but then uh, then you end up basically maybe not really seeing the full picture. So if it turns out that this exists, uh, pro if this RNA is responsible for a large part of the reason why women are more susceptible. How does that help in terms of treatment, right? Because I think understanding why it happens is the first step, but how do we apply that to maybe the way we treat these diseases? Right, so in terms of treatment, um, the one of the, um, now that we know perhaps that is, is actually, okay, this RNA, we can really focus in much more on what are the consequences? Uh, how does it go from you know one uh, RNA to a whole full-blown immune response attacking um, many different organs? And in our study, we found that there's a type of cells that make antibodies. They're called B cells, but there are special kind of B cells that seems to expand in response to having the presence of exists in the body and also presence of inflammation. And so that is one clue as to how we can actually stop this process, right? There's a chain of events. Maybe if we take one of the links out in this chain, we can actually hopefully maybe make a dent in this disease. This is obviously remains to be seen whether this can happen or not. 
Right. But I imagine many living with these diseases like MS and lupus, they have no cure. They can be incredibly debilitating. Uh, You know, it sounds like there's potentially down the line, there could be hope for better ways to treat some of these like lifelong conditions. Uh, We certainly hope so. And of course, as you mentioned, Ashley, there's been tremendous progress over the last decade or so for all kinds of treatments for uh, uh, autoimmune diseases, including in my own field of dermatology, great progress for psoriasis and atopic dermatitis. Those are not diseases with this kind of strong female bias, but so I'm, I'm hopeful. Actually, that raises a question I did want to ask. Are there any autoimmune diseases that males are more likely to get? Ah, well, this, this, uh, brings up my own bias, because I obviously only pay attention to female bias diseases. Um, I think there are certain kinds of liver diseases, but they're not necessarily autoimmune, that have more of a male bias. Uh, and I think that, for example, type 1 diabetes has sort of a roughly mm. equal preponderance between uh, men and women. So yeah, there are many autoimmune diseases where uh, that maybe then suggests even a, a different sort of etiology or some, something different going on. What about psoriasis? Do skin conditions have a bias between men and women? Psoriasis, not so much. Yeah, it is very common, um, sometimes often very mild, but not so much. Uh, Do you think it's possible that your research could lead to earlier detection of certain diseases, maybe before we start having symptoms? Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. And I mentioned the the results with autoantibodies previously. And other studies have found that in patients who go on to develop autoimmune diseases, oftentimes they actually start making antibodies. Uh, autoantibodies refers to the fact that you know, antibodies normally are substances that the immune system makes to fight off foreign uh, invaders, uh, viruses and things like that. But sometimes you can make antibodies against a self-structure or usually a self-protein. And uh, this is definitely a symptom and sometimes it's directly causing, uh, let's say, autoimmune symptoms. And so what people have found from these longitudinal studies, um, most famously in these army studies, is that individuals could actually start making autoantibodies years before they actually have symptoms. And of course, you actually are much more likely to actually have full-blown disease uh, if you're starting to make autoantibodies. And so, um, so I'm hopeful that if we can identify, for example, autoantibodies against exist-associated proteins, might those autoantibodies also be a useful, uh, let's say, uh, harbinger uh, of, of diseases uh, and we can maybe tell who's at risk? We don't know that yet, right? So this is purely speculative, but that's, that's one possibility. Yeah, and that's a big possibility because when I think about like MS, for example, a lot of the medication on the market doesn't reverse what's happened. It's about stopping the progression of the disease. So I think about it in that case, early detection can be so critical in terms of like ability. Yeah, you're right. Because a lot of symptoms really show up when the tissue or the organs reserve has been completely depleted, right? So we have some excess capacity and now it's like really, really down to the wire. And then you're noticing like, oh, the kidney's not working so well, or you know, there's some something really bad. Or your going vision on. is dipping or something. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see it? I don't know if this is this is where my brain went. So correct me if I'm totally off base. But uh, as somebody who has seasonal allergies, I have had that that skin prick test, right, where they're sort of testing for do I react? Do I develop antibodies for pollen, ragweed, dust, animals? 
Are you kind of envisioning maybe one day, decades down the line, having like a similar test for autoimmune diseases to see what you might like? Could we get to that stage or is that like not the right co correlation? That's a really interesting idea. I think that, um, yeah, what you're mentioning is obviously people who are having symptoms already and you're trying to figure out whether you're, what are you reacting against, right? And so what you can stay away from. And there is an, you, you mentioned this sort of prick test and uh, for, for allergies. Yeah. Uh, and there's like an equivalent test. Because uh, I only thought allergies. of it because what you said is you might be building these antibodies years before a symptom. So I wonder if there would be some way to like test, like, I don't know if it'd be as simple as a skin prick, but almost like a screen for that kind of stuff that you would take. Right. So, so yeah, so that's an interesting uh, idea. And I think that the, um, um, yeah, you're, you're getting me thinking as well. So I think that <laughs> the, the interesting thing about these kind of tests, like the prick test is that like, you have to know, obviously you have to know what substances you might be allergic to like grass or pollen, right. And to, to prick your skin with it. Right. And so you, you have to know what the, what, what, the, what the trigger is. Um, and there's an equivalent uh, test that's being done for people who have skin uh, allergies. It's trying to figure out, is, is it the perfume? Is, is it the soap? Like, what is the thing is it so the that wool? they have to stay away from? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so for these autoimmune diseases, sometimes the trigger is like, you know, a long times away from actually having the autoimmune disease. So the antibody kind of test that we're talking about, it's done from the blood and you don't necessarily have to have a trigger, right? So in a way, the antibody is like a, like a fossil record of what's happened or it's like a like a maybe imprint right in hmm. your uh, in, that immune system has left behind uh, i think both could be valuable i just think that knowing the trigger it's actually uh, harder right? we don't know that yet uh, i just wonder how you would know find out what the trigger is to do this kind of provocation test well if you ever figure it out we'll definitely have you back for sure <laughs> yeah Yes. But uh, so now that you've published this paper, uh, what is next steps for you guys? Like, what is what what are you going to try to find out next, or where do you go from here? Uh, yes, yeah, so we're really interested in following up on two ideas. So one idea is I mentioned that there are these new autoantibodies against proteins in the exist uh, RNA protein complex. So we want to study additional patients and find out whether these antibodies are useful. Uh, to tell different diseases apart, and also whether they're really more present only in women rather than men uh, is a useful information in, in different sexes. Um, the second direction we briefly discuss is trying to understand the process from which this one RNA triggers uh, the full-blown immune response, right? What are the cells that sense it? How do the cells basically transmit that information? Or how do they go, go haywire? in different ways. So those are all, I think, important topics that we want to explore next. That was Dr. Howard Chain, Chang, sorry, Professor of Dermatology at Stanford University. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that'll do it for this Hour of All Sides. Thank you for listening.